You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When we look ahead to retirement, one big question, big, is are you doing everything you can to maximize your social security benefits and save for the future? It's time to make sure your plan is rock solid. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about specific ways to do just that with a complimentary wealth checkup. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Part of it is just learning about these tendencies and being able to kind of understand where the other person's coming from and like, oh, they got me this gift, not because they don't love or understand me. It's just, this is how they feel about money. And and that's what led to this kind of suboptimal gift. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So if any of you have ever joined us for our finance fix course, where we help you save a little more, spend a little less, get your financial goals in line, then you know that one of the first things that we do in this course is discover our money type. And our money type is, it's a personality type that says a lot about the way you view your money, spend your money, and helps us determine how to coach you to reach your best financial goals. For example, you may be what we call a nurturer. You may be somebody who views money as a way to assist others. Or you may be an independent, somebody who sees money as a tool for self-expression. Or you may be some combo platter of our five different money types. No matter what yours is, by the way, there's no wrong answer. And if you want to learn your money type, you can go to moneytype.me to figure it out. When I wrote my last book, Women With Money, I, I went around and I asked hundreds of women what they wanted from their money. And their answers were very dependent on their money types. A lot of them wanted safety and security. A lot of them wanted cash in the bank. A lot of them wanted another form of what they thought of as safety a paid-off mortgage rather than just a home that they owned. And what was really interesting was that many of them also told me that they felt like their spouses, their partners, particularly their male spouses or partners, saw money very differently. We see that in our money type exercise all the time. Couples just don't line up 
on how they view their money. Opposites actually do attract. And we know this also from research. A recent CNBC study found 64% of couples admit that they are financially incompatible with their partners. And the less they actually try to deal with this, the less they talk about money in their lives, the more likely they are headed for divorce. My guest today, Scott Rick, is a marketing professor with a PhD in behavioral decision research from Carnegie University. He works at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Go Blue, and he's spent his career studying how people balance their financial and psychological well-being, both on their own and within their relationships. His work has been cited in almost five thousand research articles and he's got a new book out it's called tightwads and spendthrifts navigating the money minefield in real relationships one quick announcement before we bring scott on and jump into this fascinating topic her money podcast is now on youtube Don't forget to subscribe to our channel at Her Money to get notified about all our new episodes. And now, Scott, welcome to the show. Jean, thank you so much. It's a big thrill. I am such a fan. I'm very excited. Thank you. Oh, well, right back at you. I know Tightwads and Spendthrifts actually started as a research paper, a research paper that I can't tell you the number of times I have cited in articles. It's fascinating, the work that you do. The title of that study and the title of the book puts people into basically two camps, tightwads and spendthrifts. Would you say that it's that binary, that people are generally in one of these two categories? Yeah. No, I think those are the two most interesting camps, the most psychologically fascinating camps. There is a third middle ground, a group that we call unconflicted consumers, And they actually do tend to be happiest, the unconflicted consumers. I think I chose to focus on the kind of ends of the continuum because they are so interesting. They they look very different on paper, but they're both conflicted in a sense. They're not spending in a way to maximize happiness, either spending too little on the tight one end or, or too much on the spendthrift end. Can we unpack the types a little bit more before we move on? How do you define a tightwad? Yeah. So a, a tightwad is someone who has a lot of distress, psychological distress, when they're considering purchases, mainly optional purchases. That's where it really affects them. And they end up spending less than they think they should. They have a lot of frustration and regret around that, particularly the people who are around them. They're not buying the best gifts for their spouses or their kids. They're just kind of holding everyone back from enjoying things as much as they could. And it's not that they just enjoy saving money. It's They're not frugal in that sense. Frugal people are, they just believe in it. They like reusing baggies and finding new uses for things. That's okay. That's good. They're happy. But a tightwad, they know better. Like they should be doing this differently and they just can't. A lot of them had some financial struggles earlier in life and they developed a protective response to the idea of spending. So if I feel enough distress that can serve as the brakes on the car and protect me from getting into trouble. But people's circumstances change. Their reactions that they developed and honed over the years, they don't change so fast. So they might look very comfortable on paper, but 
the reactions are still stuck in kind of protect mode. One of the things that's always been surprising to me is that tightwads may actually have plenty of money. Yes. Yes. They they may not feel it, but they often look good on paper. Like I quote Love in the time of cholera. There's a character who started out poor and became like a very wealthy industrialist. And someone called him rich. And he said, no, no, I'm not rich. I'm a poor man with money, which is very different. So it's it's just kind of a psychological orientation that develops and just is hard to shake when circumstances improve. So that's the tightwads. They're very different than the spendthrifts on paper. The spendthrifts, I'm one of them, are, like the brakes don't work on the car. <laughs> Someone cut them. Very impolite. But yeah, so we don't have enough distress when we think about spending. The distress that we have, if anything, comes later after we've spent and we're like, Ugh, I probably shouldn't have done that. But it's interesting. So tightwads, they have the need. They won't spend the money to fulfill the need. Spendthrifts, we're shopping for needs that we don't even have. They're like potential needs. So like I might go to the store and buy like some new work clothes and see like a beautiful velvet blazer and think, oh, well, that could be fun for like a fancy holiday party. Like the party's not on the calendar. <laughs> There's like no real reason to think I'm going to be invited to such a party, even if it did exist. But we say I'd rather be looking at it than looking for it. Like we just want to have these just in case things. And we'll do things like we'll buy a new coffee mug to motivate ourselves to bring coffee to work instead of like going to the coffee shop on a break. So we'll try to spark a new behavior with a purchase. And so, yeah, we're buying for all kinds of potential just in case things. I think I have a touch of both maybe, and maybe that makes me that person in the middle. Although I can definitely relate to being in a store and seeing a velvet blazer or a velvet dress or something. And and wanting to buy it, but realizing I really have nowhere to go, right? It's just, it's a very sad commentary on life after the pandemic. When you look at the spendthrifts, do they tend to have enough money to support their habits? Some do. In terms of income, at least, you would not be able to tell a tightwad from a spendthrift. They tend to be just about the same on that. But the spendthrifts do, on average, have more debt, less savings. They are, in general, in a little worse financial shape. It's just a financially riskier lifestyle. And there are some kind of comfortable spendthrifts. And if you have the money for it, my goodness, have fun with it. But even people who are who look real good on paper, you can, in theory, spendthrift your way to a bad situation. Like one of my big inspirations in the book is like Sammy Davis Jr. He's like my muse of a spendthrift. And he had plenty of money coming in, but boy, he had quite a bit going out. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr., Johnny Depp, right? Got into a lot of trouble with his wine buying habit and his business manager had to put a halt to it. So the folks in the middle, what did you call them again? Unconflicted consumers. They don't have a fun name like the others. but And what's their profile? So I think, as you hinted at, they have moments of both. They don't consistently identify with one or the other. And that's about where I'd say 40 to 60% of our samples fall somewhere in the middle. They have some distress when considering purchases, but not too much, not too little, just right, a Goldilocks zone. And they are happy with what they're spending. 
not too frustrated. I mean, they have the same frustrations with inflation and things like that, like everyone, but they look pretty good psychologically. And so that that really is a, a nice place to be. But it, it's, it's hard to get there. They, these are kind of stable tendencies. The book really dives into why these personality traits, attributes, types, whatever we want to call them, why they cause so much trouble in relationships. I recently had Ramit Sethi on the show, and he talked about how he and his wife went to a couples counselor. And they went because they were having some trouble with this. And what they found out was that he views money as a growth opportunity, and she views it as safety and security, which, as I said, I think is really, really typical for women. Have you found that these tightwads and spendthrifts tend to exist along gender lines? Yes, a little. We we don't find a huge effect, but spendthrifts are more likely to be women than our tight ones. But in the range of possible correlations, it's it's tiny. But we do consistently see that small effect. It's on the order of age. So like tight ones tend to be older on average than spendthrifts. We don't know if it's an aging thing or a generational thing, but there are these small kind of demographic correlations. Do you think in the case, and I'm bummed about the fact that women are are more likely to be spendthrifts than men, because I think there's a little bit of judgment associated with that. Although women do do 85% of the spending, right, in this country. And so maybe it's just that we are in the face of more opportunity. Yeah, certainly. I think If you are put in a position where you have to do all this shopping on behalf of a family, maybe it does help to numb the pain of paying just so you can get through all these necessary items. And if you're someone who's removed from that in the family where you don't have to keep shopping for everyone else, I think it's like a baseball pitcher when you sit too long in between innings and your arm gets cold, like you might find spending really painful in the few times where you do have to confront these big decisions, like you're not used to it. And so I do think there is something to this idea that repeated spending, whether by choice or by kind of circumstance, can change your your feelings towards it. I think that the fact that it's painful for some people, when I first learned that, that was just a revelation to me, right? I do find paying sometimes to be painful, but I hardly ever find shopping to be painful. So yesterday I had to pay my quarterly disability insurance premium, which is way too much money. And I'd like to drop it, but because I do what I do for a living, I know better than to drop it. And so I pay it every quarter. I just pay it and it pisses me off every single time, right? And so that's painful. But when I'm shopping, I don't find it painful. And the fact that some people do is is really interesting to me. I noted at the top of the show, there is that perception or adage that opposites attract, that we tend to often marry our financial opposite. I know you push back on that. Why? Well, It's interesting. I I actually do tend to find that pattern. I I push back on the idea that we become opposites. I think the opposite happens before the relationship, if anything. If it's in a healthy relationship, you get more similar over time. But the reason we think that opposites tend to attract on this dimension is that 
Tightwads and spendthrifts, they don't like being tightwads and spendthrifts. Like there's, it's, you're conflicted a little bit. You know, it's like not ideal. And when you encounter someone who displays your own problem or, or something that you don't like about yourself, it can be very off-putting. It can shine a uncomfortable spotlight on your own issue. And so you might initially be drawn to someone who does not have that issue. And a tightwad might be amused and fascinated by a spendthrift partner being so loose with money. And the spendthrifts might also find the tightwad's approach quite charming and amusing in their own way. And so at first we think it's fun and, and interesting, and novel. And we do find that these two types, tightwads and spendthrifts, are more likely to marry each other than they are to marry themselves. But over time, it gets less cute once you move from like a dating world to like, oh, now we need to choose where to live and houses and cars and where do kids go to school and these things get more serious. And then it starts to really, that can really grind everyone's gears. And so we find that the opposites fight more. They are less happy with the relationship. So it, it can work. I'm married to a tightwad, like a real tightwad. And, but we make it work and it just requires careful navigation, but left to their own devices, these things can be tricky. We're going to talk about how to deal with these scenarios. And it's really interesting. So I'm married for the second time and my husband has a theory that the first time you marry the problem, which would put tight wads and spendthrifts together. But the second time you marry yourself. Mm. And so maybe, maybe there is something, something in that. We'll do that when we come back. We're going to take a very quick break. And I just want to remind everyone that this is not the only show that Her Money publishes. We've got a new podcast called How She Does It. We recently had Leanne Morgan on as a guest. Her comedy career blew up recently at age 57. She is hilarious. We love her story. Karen Feinerman had a terrific conversation with her. We hope that you'll check it out and let us know what you think. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Retirement is on the horizon. And when we talk about saving and investing to prepare for our future, we also have to talk about social security. It is an important part of our financial futures, but too many of us don't do enough to maximize our social security benefits. That's why it may be time for a wealth checkup to help make sure your strategies are the best they can be for your unique situation. Personally, I think everyone, everyone needs a checkup about 10 years out from retirement. You can schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with Scott Rick, author of Tightwads and Spendthrifts. So let's talk solutions. You said you are a spendthrift who is married to a tightwad. How do you begin to navigate so that you can live a happier financial existence? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, part of it is just learning about these tendencies and being able to kind of understand where the other person's coming from and like, oh, they got me this gift, not because they don't love or understand me. It's just this is how they feel about money. And, and that's what led to this kind of suboptimal gift or decision for the household. So knowing where they're coming from, you become more forgiving and understanding, I think. 
And so we encourage that in the book, like, hey, we have this scale, this measure and take it, have your spouse take it, see where you're at, just understand everyone's orientation. But in terms of the day-to-day, I'm a big believer that a bank account structure can have a big effect on people. So what we like to do is we like to funnel all incoming household money through a joint account. We like to do like psychological money laundering. Like it all, there's no your money and my money. It's all our money. Launder it through the joint. And then we have separate accounts attached to the joint where we can take chunks as needed from that. And, you know, so we both have like a a general sense of what the other person is up to, but we don't get into the details. And so I like to call this like financial translucency instead of financial transparency. So it's like, I have an impression, but the details I think is where people get in trouble and into like unnecessary fights. So when you tactically, because we do the opposite, right? My husband and I actually funnel money into our separate accounts from what we earn, and then we move it into a joint account that we use to pay the household bills, and we fund joint goals and trips and all of that kind of stuff. And we we know kind of on a, a monthly basis how much that is. We know if we have big expenses coming up, how much additional we need to sort of kick in, and we base what we kick in on a percentage, the same percentage of our earnings. So we're basically keeping money based on that percentage as well. When you guys funnel money out of the joint account and you're not sort of talking about how much or you're not paying attention to how much, how does that work? There could be a much more structured way to do it. And sometimes we do it like, oh, let's each take out X dollars per month. And occasionally we will do that. But Those discussions aren't revisited kind of month by month. It's just assumed that, oh, I know you pay the mortgage and you pay the insurance and the taxes and we'll each take out that amount plus our own spending money for individual purposes. And and so those look pretty constant over time. But many different approaches can work. The reason I like the money laundering approach is... I just don't like scorekeeping or anything that feels like scorekeeping. Relationships often start out very communal. Like I help you because you need it, not because I'm like prepaying for like a future favor. But over time, they can slide into scorekeeping where you get to say, could you wash the dishes tonight? Because I did them last night. That That's where you don't want to be. You want to be like, oh, can you do them tonight? Because I'm exhausted and I really need the help. And so we think that the joint accounts can really, or or starting with the joint, can keep things communal and help avoid the slide into scorekeeping. And you have a paper actually that shows that it makes people happier. You did a, a research paper, you looked at newlyweds who use a joint checking account and you found their relationships are stronger. So there's gotta be something to that. Yeah, so we, we took newlyweds who started with separate accounts And we did the experiment. We randomly assigned them to say, merge your money into joint or keep it separate or do whatever you want. And we followed them for two years and we checked in with them every few months. Do you still like each other? Are you talking? (laughs) And yeah, at the end of two years, the joint accounts, they stayed at their high level of initial happiness. People, the wedding day is usually the happiest day, but they stayed there. Whereas the people who kept it separate or just did whatever they want, by the way, most of them just kept it separate. They declined over time. And so 
we think the joint account is is critical. We found that, yes, the joint account couples are, are more communal in their dealing with each other. They see incoming money like, oh, you get a work bonus. Is that your money or is it our money? They, they're more likely to say, oh, it's, it's our money. So we think it helps. But pure joint alone, I think, is not ideal because it exposes you to all these unnecessary details. That's why we have the separate coming out of that. Wait, what do you mean it exposes you to all these unnecessary details? I mean, I'd like to understand a little bit better this concept of translucency versus transparency. And also as a woman, but particularly I think as a woman who's been divorced, I always feel like it is important for women to have some money. I think it's important for everybody to have some financial autonomy. I mean, I know that I spend more money on shoes are the obvious example, but a pair of shoes than my husband would think is, he would just think it's ridiculous because he doesn't do that. And it's not a thing for him, right? But I also don't think it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't care if he knew necessarily, but I, I don't think he has to know. No, he doesn't. And, you know, if he saw that... He'd be like, oh, my gosh, you can imagine someone saying, oh, that's so silly to spend that amount on shoes. It's not jeopardizing the household's trajectory. It's harmless in the grand scheme of things. But if you focus on it, it can take the joy out of it for you. And it can just be like an unnecessary nagging problem. So that's the issue. There are little things that people can get worked up about. People have heard about like the latte factor and they think, well, if I can just avoid the latte, I can save the money and become rich. Math doesn't work out always. So you can get these arguments over little things that don't matter, first of all. And we have different interests, different hobbies, different, you know, expertise. My wife is a, an expert needle pointer. I don't need to know the cost of all those items. I, I incidentally found that out every now and then. And I'm like, oh my God, I say that to myself. But Yarn is expensive. If it's good yarn, it's expensive. Yes. And I, because of our kids, I'll blame the kids. I've gotten back into baseball card collecting and I'm not doing anything to jeopardize the household. But if she saw the prices, she would be like, like a piece of cardboard. And I'd be like, no, there's a market for it. You don't understand. We don't need to get into any of that. As long as the kind of total amount we're spending per week or month or whatever is not jeopardizing anything, I would say steer clear of the details. You never get the full details anyway. Like, oh, I spent $100 at Target. Like, what does that mean? Let, let me see the receipts. I want to go back before we wrap this up to talk just a little bit more about how people who feel like they have these spendthrift or tightwad tendencies can help each other or can help themselves. For my book, Women With Money, I interviewed a woman who told this story, and, and it was about her childhood about how she grew up thinking that they were poor. They used to go to stoop sales on the weekend. Her her father, who happened to be a financial advisor, was very, very tight with the money. And at one point, they went to the Dairy Queen in their small town, and people in that Dairy Queen kept coming up and talking to her dad. And she realized that her father actually owned that Dairy Queen and that they had plenty of money. But even as an adult, she has very, very difficult times spending money on things for her. And one of the things that she did as sort of a strategy was to set up a separate account that she funded specifically for money that she was going to spend on herself. She separated it. She put it, you know, it was just her fun money. 
what else can people do to deal with these things, no matter which side of the equation you're on? Well, first of all, I love that. And and I, I bring up something like that in the book where a tightwad, someone like that, in the moment, they're not going to be able to convince themselves that they can afford it. But if you pre-commit, if you earmark money somehow, a separate accounts or some other way of earmarking, then that can loosen up a tightwad. Spendthrifts, we don't care. We can find it, drop of the hat, like, okay, I can find the money for that. But a tightwad needs to plan it out. It's not a budget. It's a spending plan. Reframe the the money. But yeah, it's, it's very tricky. A, a tightwad really needs, sometimes they need a spendthrift to hold their hand and help them out. So, so marriage can be good for that. There are some places, some stores, some websites that are better at taking your attention away from how much money is leaving your possession to help it, you put it out of your mind. There's a store in town here, the department store, where they, they're very good at talking to you at the register and, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And by the time I get the bag, I don't even remember paying. Like, it just happened. Like... <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So choose the prepaid cruise, like, oh, gratuity is included, like just things that'll take your mind off of it. Whereas spendthrifts, it's it's just the opposite. It's about how can you ratchet up your attention to money leaving your possessions. So like when money was tight for me as a grad student, I would only pay in cash and I would go to the ATM and that would be a painful experience, reducing the money in my account. And then I would pay in the store and that would be a painful experience. So I would like find ways to double up the pain. That's no way to live a happy life, but it's like it, if you're in a moment where you need that, you can ratchet up your own attention because retailers, they're, they're not looking to help you with that. So you have to do it yourself. But yeah, I, I think we can take lessons on how we're influenced in life, in the market, and kind of play with that on our own to help ourselves. Well, it is a fascinating topic. I know that our listeners are absolutely going to love this one. What are you working on now? What's coming next? Well, I'm, I've become very curious about prenups. I have talked with a lot of people who are big fans of it. I understand there are some good use cases. Personally, I'm not a big fan. And so I'm looking at kind of the psychological effects of, of prenups on the relationship. What have you found? Have you found anything? I mean, in general, I do feel that people who are coming into a marriage, specifically a second marriage, but also a marriage where they've got a pretty well-developed financial life under their belt, whether it is because of an inheritance or because of a business or because of a child, they need one. But I'm not surprised to hear you say this based on the joint account revelation. This is true. My, my whole approach here is, I mean, that's the asterisk, like this is a riskier approach. But no, I, I understand that. I would be fine with prenups, by the way, if they were mandatory. But the fact that someone has to bring that up, that's huge. And... There is research that when we have a backup plan, which some people view a prenup as a backup plan, that we try less hard at the kind of original plan. That's my worry. And so that's what we're starting to talk to couples about, seeing how they think of it. But we're also doing a lot with like how parents spread their feelings to their kids through conversation, through kind of modeling behavior. The, the finding seems to be that kids get a lot of mixed messages from parents this has helped me to realize like, oh yeah, I can tell them, cool it with the spending all I want. But if they see me going nuts with spending, they're going to just mimic that. And so I've tried to like at least perform a little tightwadism in front of them and 
save the spendthriftiness for after they go to bed, like <laughs> shopping online or something, have it shipped to the office. But yeah, so we're looking at those mixed messages that kids get from parents. Well, I can't wait until both papers come out. I hope that you'll come back and talk about them. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jean. The uh, book, once again, is called Tightwads and Spendthrifts, Navigating the Money Minefield in Real Relationships. We will put a link in the show notes so that all of you can find it. And Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. The great thing about working remote is that I get to spend a few weeks working from sunny Florida in the winter, but it also means I needed to buy some cute new bathing suits, sunglasses, and essentials like sunscreen ahead of my trip. I've been using Ibotta to get cash back on all of my purchases, and if you listen to this show, you know I am all about money tips that help you save for things you're buying anyway. With Ibotta, just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you get real cash that you can transfer to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. It's that simple. The average Ibotta user earns $145 a year that could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. It could buy that flight you've been eyeing, that game you've been dying to go to, or that fancy dinner you've been craving. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code HERMONEY when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use code HERMONEY. That's Ibotta, I-B-O-T-T-A, in the Google Play or App Store and use code HERMONEY. If you've been following me on social media, well, you know a couple of things about me. You know that I love to run, and I particularly love to run in the morning. I gotta tell you, unlike other people that I know, I'm a sweater. I actually like to sweat. And that means that I need a routine that is gonna make sure that once I get home, I've got something to keep me clean and feeling pretty fresh all day. And that is where Lumi comes in. Look, I have been loving using Lumi's toasted coconut whole body deodorant to wake me up in the mornings. And I rub the lavender sage whole body cream pretty much all over. If you want to try all of their amazing products, Lumi's got a starter pack. It is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, as well as free shipping. And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code HERMONEY at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code HERMONEY. And we're back. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us right now. So, Jules, I was thinking as Scott, our guest for the show today, was talking about the difference between tight wads and spendthrifts, how spending is pleasurable for some people and actually painful for other people, that I probably have to apologize to you for the fact that I know spending is pleasurable to you, and you probably got that from me. Yeah. And then with Jake, it's like painful. Who did he get that from? Jake. Yeah. Jake does not like spending money. 
Daddy doesn't love spending money. You know, he likes spending money on food. He likes going to restaurants. He likes eating out. But he doesn't really like shopping for clothes. For me, and I think for you, shopping is like a leisure activity. Yeah. I don't even need to buy anything, but I like to go to a store and look around and touch things. Totally. And it's just, it's not like that for him. It's not like that for Jake. I think with Jake, too, he just worries that if he spends the money now, he won't have it later, which is a good worry, by the way. Yeah, it is. Anyhow. Anywho, you don't want to talk about how much spending you're doing. Nope. Let's take Kelly's question then. All right. Our first question comes to us from Kelly. She writes, My husband and I do not mix finances, so our names are not on each other's accounts. In the event that something happens to one of us, how do we ensure that the other will have access to the other's accounts and the money in them? Is being married enough, or do we need to take another step? I'm speaking of just checking and savings. We made each other a beneficiary on retirement and life accounts. So, in theory, being married is enough. Because what happens when you're married, and I hope that you have a will that basically says that he inherits from you and you inherit from him. But even if you don't, in most states, if not in all states, you're the inheritor. So you will generally get access to those accounts but it's more of a process than it needs to be. What you actually need is power of attorney for each other. You need to give him durable power of attorney for you. He needs to give you durable power of attorney for him for finances. And that gives you the ability to deal with his accounts if something were to happen to him and he is unable to do it himself. So go ahead and draw up those documents. They're very easy. And then go to your banks and make sure that your banks will accept that form of power of attorney. I tell you this because I just reported a column for AARP where a daughter who had power of attorney on her mother's accounts was having a bear of a time accessing those accounts because it wasn't the preferred power of attorney form from that institution. So be proactive, make sure the banks will accept it, and you should be good to go. Pretty simple there, Julia. Totally straightforward. Should we get into the next question? Absolutely. It's kind of related, I think. Yeah, totally. Our next question comes from Chris. My boyfriend, who currently rents and lives with his two pets, and I are planning for him to move in with me next year. We love living in Seattle, yet dollars don't stretch much here, so it may be practical for us to live together. I still owe on my mortgage. I have an older single family home, and my two kids are with me four days a week. I also have two pets. I want to make sure we have an agreement so his financial goals are protected, as are mine, paying down the mortgage, renovation, protecting my kids. We are not adding each other to any of our financial assets or documents. I'm just old enough, 48, to know that documentation is your friend. So, what's recommended? A simple lease agreement? Actually, no. 
What you want is what's called a cohabitation agreement, which is kind of like a prenup for people who do not plan on getting married but want to live together and want to sort of lay out the rules for how we're going to handle our finances currently, but also our financial obligations to each other for the long term. And also if we break up or if one of us dies, you got to get an attorney to do this. And it should basically outline whether your partner is entitled to a share of your property. If the relationship breaks down, you can specify what the financial contribution is going to look like. You know, will they contribute to the mortgage? Will they contribute to maintenance or utilities or insurance? And you should really specify what happens in the event of a breakup. How much notice do you have to give before that person moves out? How do you divide up furniture, for example, that you have purchased together? A lawyer should be able to walk you through this. You should be able to get it drafted fairly easily. The number of people who are living together while not getting married is on the rise. It's been pretty large for a very long time now. So attorneys, matrimonial attorneys, divorce attorneys, for example, are used to doing these things. And that's the direction that I would recommend that you go in. Congratulations on taking this step, Chris. Sounds very, very exciting. And I got to say, I'm thinking about those four pets and how those four pets are going to cohabit or cohabitate, right? I mean, I've often thought, Jules, about bringing another dog in to my house, whether it was when we had Teddy, who we know didn't love other dogs, or mm-hmm. now we have Norman, who does love other dogs. I think that's going to be as big an adjustment for those pets as it is for you. Maybe. Could be. I mean, you've done this. You've seen pets added at Daddy's house, right? He has had four dogs at one point. Yeah. How does that tend to work? They get over it. They like each other. They become like a pack. Is there ever any discord early on? Do they take each other's toys? You don't remember? Linus and Leo used to, like, murder each other. Then they became best friends. Okay. All right. Well, I hope that your dogs or whatever you have, Chris, become best friends. Maybe you have cats. They'll just ignore each other and go on with their days. Jules, thanks again so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. See you next week. If you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. We're going to take a quick break. Here's one of my money rules. If you can't afford to replace it, insure it. If you can afford to replace it, don't. This rule applies for pretty much all kinds of insurance, and you'll make the right decision on life insurance if you think about it as income insurance. If there are people who depend on your income and they wouldn't be able to replace it without you, buy the life insurance. The good news is life insurance is hugely affordable, but it's one of those things that definitely makes sense to shop around for. The differences can be great. Start by getting a free quote from Select Quote. 
SelectQuote has helped people save 50% or more by shopping highly rated insurance carriers for them. In fact, they recently found a 40-year-old woman a $500,000 policy for only $16 a month. They do the legwork and the research for you. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million one, their licensed insurance agents can help you find the right policy for you, for your family, and for your budget. If you have people who depend on your income, take a couple minutes today to get your quote. Quotes are completely free and quick to calculate. Go to selectquote.com. That is selectquote.com. Details on the sample rate at selectquote.com. We are back with your money tip of the week. Is your mind the key to being better with money? Research says absolutely. And if you're focusing on your finances this year, behavioral economists say there are a few tricks that you can use to trick your brain into succeeding. One of them, take a financial health day when you need it most. Use the day or a set block of time on that day to tackle your financial to-do list. For example, to look into and then cancel subscriptions that you don't use anymore, to close accounts that have been hitting you with fees, to shop around for a better high-yield savings account that'll pay you additional interest than you're earning right now, or even to check out your 401k or your other retirement account to see if it needs rebalancing. My guest today, Scott Rick, also suggests using psychological speed bumps. These are tactics that can make you stop and think before you spend and include things like clearing your saved credit card info from websites and apps and unsubscribing from all those shopping emails that you know you're on. For more brain hacks like these, subscribe to our newsletter at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Scott Rick for sharing strategies for loving someone whose mindset is so different from our own. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 